You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us open our Bibles together. We do so this afternoon to the book of Chronicles, 2 Chronicles chapter 33. 2 Chronicles tells an interesting, well-known story about Manasseh, king of Judah, a story that also ties in well with our Lord's Day 33 sermon of this afternoon. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 55 years. He did evil in the eyes of the Lord, following the detestable practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before the Israelites. He rebuilt the high places his father Hezekiah had demolished. He also erected altars to the Baals and made Asherah poles. He bowed down to all the starry hosts and worshipped them. He built altars in the temple of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, My name will remain in Jerusalem forever. In both courts of the temple of the Lord, he built altars to all the starry hosts. He sacrificed his sons in the fire in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, practiced sorcery, divination, and witchcraft, and consulted mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the eyes of the Lord, provoking him to anger. He took the carved image he had made and put it in God's temple, of which God had said to David and to his son Solomon, In this temple and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. I will not again make the feet of the Israelites leave the land I assigned to your forefathers, if only they will be careful to do everything I commanded them concerning all the laws, decrees, and ordinances given through Moses. But Manasseh led Judah and the people of Jerusalem astray, so that they did more evil than the nations the Lord had destroyed before the Israelites. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and his people, but they paid no attention. So the Lord brought against them the army commanders of the king of Assyria, who took Manasseh prisoner, put a hook in his nose, bound him with bronze shackles, and took him to Babylon. In his distress, he sought the favor of the Lord his God, and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. And when he prayed to him, the Lord was moved by his entreaty and listened to his plea. So he brought him back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord is God. Afterward, he rebuilt the outer wall of the city of David, west of the Gihon Spring, in the valley as far as the entrance of the Fish Gate and encircling the hill of Ophel. He also made it much higher. He stationed military commanders in all of the fortified cities in Judah. He got rid of the foreign gods and removed the image from the temple of the Lord, as well as all the altars he had built on the temple hill and in Jerusalem, and he threw them out of the city. Then he restored the altar of the Lord and sacrificed fellowship offerings and thank offerings on it and told Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. The people, however, continued to sacrifice at the high places, but only to the Lord their God. The other events of Manasseh's reign, including his prayer to his God and the words the seers spoke to him in the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, are written in the annals of the kings of Israel. Israel. 
his prayer and how God was moved by his entreaty as well as all his sins and unfaithfulness and the sites where he built high places and set up Asherah poles and idols before he humbled himself, all are written in the records of the seers. Manasseh rested with his fathers and was buried in his palace and Amnon, his son, succeeded him as king. We've come this afternoon to Lord's Day 33 of the Heidelberg Catechism. What is the true repentance or conversion of man? It's the dying of the old nature and the coming to life of the new. What is the dying of the old nature? It is to grieve with heartfelt sorrow that we have offended God by our sin, and more and more to hate it and flee from it. What is the coming to life of the new nature? It is a heartfelt joy in God through Christ and a love and delight to live according to the will of God in all good works. But what are good works? Only those which are done out of true faith in accordance with the law of God and to his glory and not those based on our own opinion or on the precepts of men. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ, There was once a truly, truly awful king in Jerusalem. We just read about him. His name was Manasseh. He started his reign very early at 12 years of age, and wouldn't you know it, he ended it very late at 67. For 55 long years, he subjected God's people to terrible abuse. What kind of abuse? Spiritual abuse, foreign abuse, temple abuse, family abuse. He took over the terrible practices of the nations that God had ordered eradicated. It says he even surpassed them in evil and depravity. He undid the reforming work of his father, King Hezekiah, and he covered the land with Baal altars and Asherah poles from one end to the other. And he even managed to pollute the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem. It would appear that nothing was sacred in the eyes of this man. Not even his family. Does it not say that he burned his sons in the valley of Ben-Hinnom? Imagine that, if you can, sacrificing your own sons, burning them to death. Not just one, perhaps two, maybe more. The stench of false worship hung over the land of Israel. Sorcery, divination, witchcraft, mediums, spiritists, carved images. Manasseh was into everything foul and depraved. No one, it seems, compared to him in evil. No one could match his idolatry. No one had so sick a heart. Beyond redemption, wouldn't you think? A fitting object for divine wrath, say. And that's also, of course, what he became. We read that the sovereign Lord raised up the Assyrians. They came, defeated Israel, captured the king. 
And they put a hook through his nose and they bound him with fetters of iron and they carted him off to Babylon. And as we read this, we can only cheer. May a thousand hooks be put through his nose. May the chains that bind him be permanent and painful and heavy. A man so depraved deserves all the misery that the Assyrians can heap upon him. He should be punished forever. And yet, that's not what happened. Verse 12 and following describe a most unusual development. It says, in his distress he sought the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. And then it goes on to say in verse 13, And when he prayed to him, the Lord was moved by his entreaty and listened to his plea, so he brought him back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. And then Manasseh knew, finally knew that the Lord is God. Beloved, how amazing, how stunning an account. On the one hand, it surprises us. On the other hand, it may even anger and disappoint us somewhat. How can this man be forgiven all of these evils and restored again to favor? It makes no sense. What is God trying to prove? What's the point of it all? My beloved, the point is repentance or conversion. The point, you can say, is the power of a converted life. For it shows us what God can and does do in the lives of his children. And so, beloved, the story of Manasseh, of King Manasseh, is in many ways a fitting introduction for our Lord's Day of this afternoon. But this Lord's Day is all about conversion or repentance. And it's all about that within, I remind you, within the context of thankfulness. So let's take a closer look. I preach to you on the theme of thankful life means a converted life. And we shall consider together the need for a converted life, the character of a converted life, and the goal of a converted life. Well, beloved, as we turn our attention to Lord's Day 33 this afternoon, we may wonder about the connections here. The previous Lord's Day, Lord's Day 32, launched us into a new section of the Heidelberg Catechism. And above it are the words, the third part, our thankfulness. In other words, we are now into the thankfulness or the gratitude part of the Heidelberg Catechism. You remember first we had sin and misery on the Lord's Day 2 to 4. Then we had deliverance or salvation in the Lord's Day 5 to 31. And now we're into thankfulness, the part that begins in Lord's Day 32 and goes all the way to Lord's Day 52. So, beloved, need to remember that here thankfulness, gratitude is the dominant theme of the catechism. But that in turn raises the question, what does Lord's Day 33 
And its stress on repentance or conversion have to do with our thankfulness. As a matter of fact, when you first read it, you wonder, is this Lord's Day not out of place here? What's it doing here? Now, it may be that you've never given this a lot of thought. It may also be that you simply accept it as fact, that the catechism is perhaps not being too coherent here. It just kind of lumps a whole bunch of different things together without much rhyme or reason. And yet, beloved, on further reflection, that's not really the case at all. The catechism doesn't bring in repentance or conversion here simply because it has some loose ends to tie together or some forgotten theology to include. No, it brings up the matters of repentance or conversion because it is necessary, oh so necessary, to do so and to do so here. And even stronger than that, beloved, we can say that no real, true thankfulness will ever be present in our lives unless it springs from the root and reality of a converted life. Without it, our life of thankfulness is nothing more than sham and pretense. Consider in that connection what you read in Acts chapter 8. In it, there is described a certain man by the name of Simon who specialized in sorcery. It's kind of connected to what we read in 2 Chronicles 33 where there's a lot of sorcery. And Simon was a most successful sorcerer. The poor and the rich people all went to him and no doubt they paid him lots of money. He had their attention, he had their awe and their adulation. He was one of the most powerful men in all of Samaria. And many people thought that he even had divine powers. But then one day something new came to town, it was Philip. And he was preaching the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. And the result, well, the people listened, many believed and were baptized, and, and Simon was among them as well. It says that he too believed and was baptized. But you know, it also says something else. It says that Simon followed Philip everywhere and that he was astonished by the great signs and miracles that he saw. But Simon was more than simply astonished. He was intrigued. And he was intrigued especially when he saw that the Spirit, the obvious source of all of these wonders and miracles, was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands. You know, previously Simon had boasted in verse 9 that he was someone great. But now he saw a way to become even greater. If only he could get hold of, if only he could control and and make use of the Spirit's power, he would be someone truly awesome. So what did he do? He approached the apostles. And he said, I have a deal for you. He offered them money. 
He said, give me this ability also so that everyone in whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. The reaction, however, was swift and brutal. Peter tells him, may your money perish with you. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. You see, beloved, Peter and others reject not just Simon's offer, but they also reject Simon's sincerity, his religiosity. And of course, that raises a few questions, doesn't it? Earlier, Scripture says he believed and was baptized. Whereas now it says that his heart was not right with God. So how can you believe and yet still have an unsound heart? Isn't that a contradiction? You know, a believer may have an imperfect heart, and we all do. But an unsound heart, and not right heart, an uncommitted heart, How is that possible? Well, it is not possible. Indeed, beloved, what we have here, I dare say, is the case of a man who never truly believed. He may have passed himself off as a true, sincere, thankful Christian, but in due time, his real motives come to the surface. In other words, Simon is an illustration of a man who professes to be a grateful Christian, but his life is devoid of true repentance or conversion. He's in the church, but he's not really of the church. Church Father Augustine would say he's a gallstone. He's in there. But you sure wish he was out of there. Yes, and all of this makes Simon a lesson for us. You know, sometimes people jump to the conclusion that as, as long as you are in the covenant of grace or in the sphere of the covenant, that as long as you have been baptized, that as long as you do the right churchy kind of things, you're saved. You've got your ticket. Or else it seems as if we covenant children do not really need to be converted at all. That's the kind of stuff that only happens to heathens and unbelievers, not to us. But if we think that, beloved, how wrong we are. The call to repent and believe goes out to all of us. And none of us should think that we can pull a Simon Namely, say one thing with our mouths, but go another way with our hearts. Our mouths and our hearts need to be in sync. Both our mouths and our hearts need to be converted. And only then can we live a truly thankful life. And only then can we also live in step with this third part of the catechism. And then, beloved, if repentance or conversion is necessary, what is it? 
What is the true conversion or repentance of man? What's it all about? Well, look at that word repentance perhaps first. If you do a biblical word study, you would soon discover that the Old Testament as well as the New Testament employ a number of key words to describe this. For example, in the Old Testament, there are two words. The one means to be sorry or to be moved to pity. The other means to turn back or to go in the opposite direction that you were going. In addition, there's also two New Testament words. The first means a change of heart or mind. The second refers to a turnabout or a turning towards. In other words, a total change of behavior. In addition, beloved, you notice there's also the word conversion here, and it really refers to a, a twofold turning, a turning away for something and a turning to someone. Why simply it has to do with a turning away from sin and a turning towards God. So really, when you look at the words and what they mean, there isn't a lot of difference between the word repentance and the word conversion. They function here as synonyms. They mean the same. And so now the catechism takes that biblical insight, it combines it with the insights of the Apostle Paul, and you get what you have here in Lord's Day 33, when it says that repentance or conversion has two parts. One part, the negative part, is called the dying of the old nature. My catechism students in the old days used to like the expression, the mortification of the old man, because of course that can have a kind of double meaning. The other part, the positive part, is called the coming to life of the new nature. Or the quickening of the new man. But we can't say more. For both of these parts should also be looked at and broken down further. Consider the, the negative part. It actually entails a number of different elements. If you look at the catechism, grief, shame, hate, and flight. If you look at the positive part, it it includes joy and love and delight or exuberance. It's the idea of being tickled pink. In short, beloved, the language is rather clear here. But of course it needs to be more than clear. It also needs to speak. Specifically, it needs to speak to you and I. For this is more than simply a theological discourse or explanation. Beloved, in a sense, Lord's Day 33 is a call. A call for each and every one of us to examine our, our lives. Not our neighbors, our own life. In spite of what we claim, in spite of what we say, in spite of the image that we project or present, what kind of life are we really living? Are you living a truly penitent life? Are you living a truly converted life? In other words, what's going on in your nature? Do you know what it is to grieve with godly sorrow over your sins? Is there ever with you this sense of offense, this realization that 
what you've just said or done or even thought really offends God? Never mind about people. What about God? What about your sin? You know what they are. How do you handle them? React to them? Ignore them? Justify them? Forget about them? Excuse them? Or do you really hate them and try to run as far away as possible from them? Contrary to what so many people think, it's all right to hate. As long as you hate the right thing and the right person. In other words, hate your sins and hate the devil. Go for it. But of course, all that's negative. And there's much more to the Christian faith. There's also the positive. And notice the catechism summarizing the scripture says it consists in heartfelt joy. And that's the catechism's way of reminding us this isn't a superficial, fickle kind of joy. It's not flighty. It's not skin deep. It's not here today and gone tomorrow. No, it's real and deep and abiding joy because it rests in God. And because it's based on the great saving work of Jesus Christ our Lord. Beloved, do you know this joy? Is it present in your life? Does it sustain you in the hard days? And enrich you in the good days? And at the same time, is there also more? Is there joy in you and is there a huge desire to serve God? In other words, does God's person, God's agenda, if you will, does it drive your life? And I think that's a pertinent question, especially in our time and age. Living as we do in easy, affluent times where the world has its multitude of attractions and distractions, is there still a place for God, a big place, a dominant place for Him? Beloved, do you allow your love and delight to be in your possessions, your toys, your cars, your jobs, your friends, your weekends, your parties, your holidays? Or does your love and delight dwell in your God and in His most holy will? Now again, it may be easy to say yes, of course, to all of this. You know, soon another season of single and family visitations is about to begin, and then it's easy to fend off the elders with very good-sounding, pious answers. But nevertheless, notice that when it comes to true repentance or conversion, words are not enough. You'll notice the same thing with King Manasseh. It says he repents, but that's not all it says. It also shows how after repentance he reforms the nation he has previously corrupted. In other words, deeds are also vitally necessary. 
Jesus said that his disciples would be known not by their words, but by their fruits. By their fruits. You shall know them. And what constitutes fruit? Well, the answer comes in answer 90 and question and answer 91. True fruit is the same as good works. We are to live according to the will of God in all good works. That's how we prove the reality of our converted life. That's how we testify to the fact that we are truly thankful. But what are good works? Now that's a question that's often debated. At the same time, there is the popular notion out there that whatever seems to be good is good. In other words, anything helpful, nice, kind, beneficial, considerate, that's a good work. You know, biblically speaking, the answer is not quite that simple. But look at how answer 91 describes good works from out of a a biblical perspective. It says that these works are truly good. For them to be truly good, they need the right source. And the right source... There's only one, God says, and that's true faith. They have to bubble up out of your faith life. In addition, it says that for these works to be truly good, they need to conform to a certain standard. And that's not public opinion. That's not the prevailing philosophy. That's not the current trend that's out there. No, there's really only one standard, and that's the law of God. God sets the norm, God creates the standard. And finally it says, for these works to be truly good, they need the right kind of goal or intent. And what's the right goal? Is it human praise? Is it to even benefit society? No, the only true goal is the glory of God. In short, beloved, the source is true faith, the standard is the law of God, the norm and the goal is the glory of Almighty God. Those are good works, really, truly good biblical works. Well, it's Sunday, tomorrow's Monday, go out and do them. Apply your hearts and lives to doing them. Put them at the top of your daily agenda. Fine? No, not fine. For how shall we do them? How shall we ever live these kind of lives and exhibit these kind of works? Well, beloved, in the only way that you and I can do anything, and that is through the strength that God alone can and does supply. None of this can be done in our own power. As only God can work true conversion or true repentance, so only God can enable us to live according to His will in all good works. So look to Him 
Call on Him. Trust in Him. Love Him. And He, through the great work of His Son, and by the power of His mighty Spirit, will make your life bloom and blossom for His praise, glory, and honor. Truly, He will. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.